All right, what's up, guys? It's Matt again from the Hotbox Podcast. You're listening to part two of the Helena, Montana Medical Growers Association Cannabis Hemp Symposium. Uh, this was recorded, you guys remember, back when I went to Helena. We streamed it live. Uh, here is just the audio. This is the second hour in the main room. You'll hear Irvin Rosenfeld introduce himself. And then we have a doctor and we have a scientist. I honestly, I looked for their names on the MMGA site. I couldn't find them. So uh, doctor and scientist. And of course, Irvin Rosenfeld. So uh, yeah, this is part two. I have many, many more parts to go. So I hope you enjoy these. All right. Rosenfeld. And as he stated, I'm the longest surviving of the four remaining federal medical cannabis patients in the United States. I was approved on October 5th, 1982. I became a, got my first medicine on November 20th, 1982. I discovered, I have, I have a bone disorder, I have bone tumors all throughout my body. And I was an advocate against cannabis in high school in the late 60s. Why would a healthy person use a legal drug when here I had to take all these legal narcotics and drugs? You know, don't do legal drugs. Went off to college in Miami from Virginia, Southern Virginia, and there I was exposed to the use of medical cannabis uh, in 1971. I gave into peer pressure and tried it just to be accepted. It did nothing for me. I didn't get any fourth effect. It did nothing. It was community pure garbage. About the tenth time I did it, I was playing a game of chess, and I disliked chess. And I sat for 30 minutes until I lost. And then I realized I'd been sitting for the entire 30 minutes. It was the first time I did that for more than 10 minutes in five years. Normally I would sit for 10 minutes and stand for 10 minutes. It dawned on me that I hadn't taken any narcotics or drugs. I had morphine, I had quaalude, I had Valium. You name the narcotic or drug, I had it. And then all of a sudden they handed me the joint. And I looked at that piece of garbage because to me that's all it was. And that's all I had done differently, I realized, was to smoke this garbage. Uh, analytically, I, I figured, well, what if there's any, any benefit to this, medically speaking? And so that's how my journey began in 1971. So with the help of Robert Randall, myself, and the other federal patients that came before y'all, and then with the help of all the different states that we've accomplished, that we've gotten to, there are 14 states, and I look back here, and it's, a, it's an honor to be able to come to Montana, one of the states that have passed it. I appreciate the invitation from Jim and, and Heidi and, and your state. I do know that there's turmoil going on in the state, that they're, they're, it, the pendulum might have swung too far one way or the other. The problem is, is this is still a patient's issue. And so that's what the legislature, that's what the people, that's what the physicians, that's what everybody has to realize that this is a patient issue. So that's really what we're here to talk about today and what I'll be uh, expressing more uh, in the later talks. Thank you. Thank you very much. The way the general sessions will work and with our panels is we have some questions that we prepared ahead of time, but we want to hear from you folks as well. And again, it doesn't matter which side of the issue you are on. If you're here and you're not in favor of medical cannabis, we still want you to stand up and be heard, and everybody will be respectful of whatever opinion anybody has, because that's how we operate. Uh, the first question, though, is for Herb. Your book, My Medicine, says on the cover how you took on the federal government. And you'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more in, that, in detail this afternoon. But why did you take on the federal government, and why are you now helping others? When I discovered that the illegal substance, marijuana, also known as medical cannabis, was beneficial to me, I didn't consider myself a criminal. I consider myself a patient. And if a doctor could give me dilaudid, synthetic morphine, or methacolone, quaalude, or diazepam, valium, that that same physician should be able to give me medical cannabis. 
uh, but because of the laws, I was considered a criminal. I didn't like that aspect. So being uh, from a law-abiding family growing up in Southern Virginia, the history of our country is giving liberty to giving death in Virginia. And if you believe something that's different, but you do it the right way, you're not frowned upon in the state. So I decided at that point that I was not going to be a criminal, so I had to take on the federal government to get the medicine I needed, and that's what I would do. So it was a 10-year struggle, and I won. And once you win, it's like, well, you know, you can just sit back and, and not help anyone else, but when you've got a devastating disorder, which sucks, you want to make something good come out of something bad. So by helping others try to get the needed medicine that I was fortunate enough to get, and that made me feel good. So that's what makes me feel, feel good when I come to a state like this, and I look at all these patients that are out there getting help. I look at a physician like this that's helping these patients, and it's, it's like, you know, well, what I've done is help pay off, but we're not there yet. So that's why I'm still here and still educating, and, and that's, that's why I flew all the way from Fulbright over here. Thank you. Chris, it seems the medical community is somewhat confused over medical cannabis. You know, why are some doctors willing to make the recommendation and others aren't? Well, let's start with the fact that physicians differ in their attitudes about whether the risks and benefits of, of cannabis are more, more risk than benefit or, or vice versa. And I, I, studies that have been done suggest that easily 15 to 20 percent of the physician population just flatly doesn't believe that there is any scientific basis for believing that cannabis has any medical value whatsoever. They believe what the federal government says about it and whether they believe it simply because it's a, I, I, you know, I think certainly everybody in this room that, that understands that once the federal government puts a particular label on a substance, that, that should be the last word on the subject. And for many reasons, not the least of which is that we cherish uh, our right to prescribe other types of, of uh, medications, uh, particularly in the controlled substance realm. You, you know, you, you have to walk very uh, cautiously uh, into any situation where you're even advocating a Schedule One drug. If I stand up in this group and tell you all that I believe crack cocaine has more medical benefit than downside, I, I would fully expect you to contradict me, some of you on the basis of personal experience. Um, and, and I think you have to recognize that there are physicians who, on the basis of what they've seen in their offices, what they've been taught in their educational uh, forums, um, are convinced that marijuana is more detrimental than beneficial to everybody, and, and as a you know as a sum end sum game, that's that's where they leave it. Um, it, it comes down to, to the fact that, that you know I was taught that, and, and I was taught that I was taught that if I gave enough of a narcotic, an opioid, to anybody in this room, I could make you an addict. And I hope some of you at least know that, that I could give you any amount of, of opioids and I'll never addict you. I probably will make you dependent. And you'll darn well likely have a phase called withdrawal, which you, your use won't be out of control, compulsive, or without regard for consequences. If I don't teach any of you anything else today, I will teach you that indeed nobody is an addict addicted to anything if their behavior is not out of control, compulsive, and without regard for consequences. So 
to the extent that physicians see marijuana as capable of producing that phenomenon, addiction, they're going to fear it and they're going to be un unwilling to certify for it. The rest of it comes down to fear of the DEA, uh, fear of uh, uh, peer uh, criticism, and the simple fact that, that most physicians are tied to either hospitals or large groups in which at the present time, even though it's legal, it, it, it's looked on as substandard care. Thanks, Chris. Are we taking questions? We will, just a second. Uh, no. Uh, you know, and, and Chris just brought it up. You know, we hear a lot about there being no research at all, really, on, on cannabis, that it really does work. Is there really any scientific proof, conclusive, that this work works? Well, there's certainly, there's certainly scientific proof. Um, Going to the peer-reviewed journals that come out of academia, you'll, you'll find more information that you probably could absorb that specifies how different cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids can be served as medicinal agents for, for, this, um, for this amazing plant, you know, cannabis. Um, I mean, the, the problem is, though, here in the States, because of federal regulations, uh, true scientific research has essentially been thwarted, and a lot of the scientific findings have come from other countries. So... We're still trying to just catch up to, I guess, the scientific worldwide community in regards to cannabis so that we can understand how this medicine actually reacts in our body, how we can administer it better, um, and how we can focus on different pieces of this medicine that might not be psychotropic, like THC. Not everybody seems to want the, the euphoric effect from THC, but they very likely want some of the medicinal value from, other, from some of the other cannabinoids or some of the other constituents found in this plant. And I, I do think it is worth noting that the endocannabinoid cycle, the, the human or the, the animal internal body regulation of this endocannabinoid cycle was only discovered about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And in that regard, 20 years is not a lot of time to figure out how physiological medicine is really working on, I guess, people in this case. So there is absolutely scientific evidence that cannabis can produce a number of very beneficial medical effects, uh, but there's a lot for us to learn, and there's no doubt about that. Thanks, Any question? Anybody have a question come to mind? Raise your hand at some point in time. We'll come back. What exactly is the I'm going to repeat the question. Oh, no, I'm going to repeat the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in case you missed the opening, this is being streamed live over the internet, and I think we, we've heard back where we were. I know we're in Florida. Where else? From everywhere. <laughs> All right, so we're out there. All right, Madeline, one more time your question. What exactly is an endocannabinoid? What is an endocannabinoid? All right, well, cycle. I'll take a shot at this, and, and Dr. Christensen might correct me if I, um, if I misspeak. Um, I'm not a physician, but I am a chemist. Um, the endocannabinoid cycle is, um, well, we have, we have identified two potentially more receptors in the body that specifically cannabinoids can target towards. But the human body actually produces endogenously some chemicals that will stimulate those receptors. And the two chemicals that I think are primarily responsible for that are anatomide and 2-AG. And those are produced in the human body. But cannabinoids, THC particularly, has a CD1 and CD2 mixed agonist. It, it binds to those and it stimulates response. It's a stronger CD1 agonist. Um, but the cannabinoids can stimulate these 
um, these sensors in the body that you know your body otherwise will regulate. So, so that is known in that shell, the endocannabinoid cycle. And it should also be noted that all animals have the endocannabinoid cycle to a different or to different degrees. I think uh, insects don't, but animals apparently do. We find it throughout the entire body, in the immune system, in the nervous system, the skeletal system. I mean, it's it's found. We're discovering more and more places in the body in which these receptors exist. Thank you. Irv, here's, here's a kind of a general question. There's always a, there's, there's a big issue about public display of medicating. Can you give us some thoughts from someone who's had to deal with this for a lot longer than any of us have? Give us your thoughts on, on public display and public, you know, and all of that. Okay, well, the agreement that I have with TEA were made many, many years ago, is that the federal patients would try to get away from people as we medicate. Uh, if there were people around us that it didn't, and a fear didn't bother, then that was a different story, but otherwise try to be away from people. So we do our best not to really just flaunt it and, you know, not to go up into somebody's face and say, hey, look at me, look what I can do, and light up the smoke. So it's, it's, it's discretion is a better part of valor. However, in, 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 in situations where you need your medicine, you do your best, you can. And if the best you can is to go sit in your car, and your car is in the front of a parking lot because you're, you're in disabled parking, and there are other people around, and you've done the best you can. To, you know, so you can still you know, take your medicine. You know, that's important. important. Now, with myself, when I go to other states, not here so much in Montana, because it's no big deal. There are patients in Montana. But when you go to Illinois, or you go to New York, or states that don't, aren't, aren't legal, then it's a big deal for the media to have somebody lay off. So there I will take my medicine on camera. I will let them see it to let them show that here is a normal person uh, who has a normal life taking his medicine. And if somebody wants to, you know, photograph me taking my insulin, if I took insulin, well, so be it. You know, if that's prescribed to me, it wouldn't bother me to do that. If it was in a state that other people weren't allowed to legally do it. So in a state like Montana, well, I'm looking at patients all over the place. So what's the big deal if I took a, you know, if I was outside right now and I lit up, I don't think cameras would care. You know, so it's not something that you really want to fall with, or especially in the media when you're trying to be responsible. What you really want to say is, this is my medicine, and just because it's in smoking form, well, it, it, why don't you want to take someone taking a pill of Xanax, or take this, or take that? It's the same thing. It's medicine. So that's really uh, the way it should be treated. Chris, how long should a physician spend with a patient before they give a medical recommendation? <clears throat> Well, Five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, two minutes. Uh, you're you're asking a question that I think ultimately needs to be determined by the patient. Frankly, yeah. Yeah. every one of you is is in a position to judge the value of the service that you're getting from a physician. And there are cases where, you know, for what, what you're being asked to, to reimburse that physician, be it you or a third-party payer, you know, the amount of time is far less than what you feel your problem needs and, and the reimbursement uh, requires. So I, it doesn't just apply to medical marijuana, but I do think I can be very specific and tell you that in my office... Typically, when I'm dealing with patients face-to-face, -face, I'm spending roughly 10 minutes or, or more with each and every patient. 
And some of you can testify to the fact that I spend 45 minutes with a patient on a day when you want to get the heck out of the office. <laughs> I don't typically get through a patient face-to-face -face in less than 10 minutes for a certification because I feel that I have to do a minimal physical exam. I have to understand not only what the, the, the medical records, frankly, have become a, a, an unreasonable icon in this whole area of medical certification. If a physician is attempting to do a certification and lacks either the desire or the knowledge to know when it's appropriate to certify, then maybe they want to look at another physician's records to make the decision. But otherwise, those records should just do one thing and one thing alone. Recognize that someone else in the profession, be it a doctor or, a, or another mid-level provider, has acknowledged the patient's problem, be it pain or nausea or <coughs> muscle spasm or whatever, and, and in a sense it abrogates the need on behalf of the physician at that point to do any additional testing uh, on their own. But I personally, as a primary care physician, deal with anybody who walks in my office for any reason, so I feel competent and qualified to start with each patient based on what they tell me about their problem and make my own assessment. So the medical records become moot for me. Okay. Don't you find a lot of patients in Montana don't have insurance, so therefore they have no medical records? Yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of people out there that are hopefully listening, and they say, well, I don't have, it says you have to have medical records, but I don't have any because I don't have a primary care physician because I have no insurance. What, what's a patient to do? Well, first, first of all, you know, there, there isn't a law in the books that I'm aware of that says the day you develop pain, you have to go to a physician and report it. Um, people walk into my office all the time and tell me stories of decades of, of pain, uh, and we're focusing on pain because, again, it's the most common situation. But you know, I also see people who, who've spent... 10 years or more struggling with, with nausea or struggling with the fact that they can't adequately nourish their body. So there are situations where people come with long-standing problems. Some of them have had amazing workups and still have no definitive diagnosis or ha certainly haven't been treated adequately. But some of them come to me you know, literally saying, you know, this is the first time I've, I've been willing to see a doctor about this particular problem. Obviously, I'm a, a means to an end, which is to gain access to a substance that, in most cases, they already know helps them. But I don't think, in, first of all, I don't think insurance should play a role in the healthcare system. I think every patient should, in fact, be receiving the amount of value uh, for what they spend their money on. And I, I think our crisis in healthcare is based on the fact that. We, our healthcare system loses every day compassion and value. Noel, this afternoon there's going to be a seminar on alternative delivery methods. And so not to spend a lot of time now, but since some of the folks might be in the other uh, discussion this afternoon and might miss that one, what, what can you say in terms of other delivery methods and what's out there now, just a kind of a random thought as to different ways that people can benefit. Um, I've learned that um, caregivers and patients are very creative with their administration methods. Um, and I think I've seen 
a very amazingly large spectrum. Uh, edibles are not just limited to brownies or cookies, but we've seen uh, oh, we've seen candies, um, uh, ice creams, uh, pretty much anything that has lipids in it because cannabinoids are what we would call a very non-polar compound and they dissolve very readily into fats or lipids, things like that. So people who are preparing things as edibles are finding very creative ways to infuse uh, different fat, you know, oils, things like that with um, cannabis and apply them in that regard as either internally uh, used medicines or topically. And I I'm really amazed because I'd say once a week somebody will show me something or bring something to our facility and I'll be pretty amazed with how creative they are because at this point we are really limited by our creativity. Uh, my only comment on the edibles though is um, the chemistry is much more important to understand when you prepare edibles. It's not as simple as just vaporizing or smoking because a series of chemicals reactions happen when you do that that you don't necessarily need to understand in detail in order to deliver or receive the medicine. But with edibles, it helps significantly to know some basic chemistry because it is not as straightforward. And this afternoon, I think, if you want, you'll probably learn quite a bit more about that. Thank you. We do have a question that's coming over the internet. Yeah, uh, Hill Bill from Kalispell, he wants to know who should be the one to recommend the dosages and what factors should be considered in that. Anybody? That's kind of a general question. <laughs> Look, um, I, I don't know if anybody in this room has the ability to standardize their their uh, product at the moment. Standardized meaning specifically that, that they can find a standard and then they can adhere to it. Uh, the, the field of medical cannabis right now revolves around the fact that, that and I say this to almost every patient who leaves my office. You're on a journey of self-discovery. You're going to find out something about what influences your body, and, and then you're going to build on that knowledge. We don't have, with the, with the exception of the ability to quantify specific components within cannabis, um, and that's, that's very limited but growing as we speak, we don't have the ability to standardize dosage or to make recommendations about anything more than the, the relative differences of how these molecules enter the body. So, you know, recommendations about dosing, you know, I don't even attempt to do that with my patients. I attempt to educate them about what the differences are going to be with various forms of ingestion, uh, you know, inhalation versus oral, and hopefully let them then work out a schedule and, and an amount that, that I, did, I did give most patients one admonition, and that is if you know the amount you're using only enables you to sit in a corner and drool on yourself, that's probably not an effective dose of medical standard. <laughs> What would be, okay. can I just, can I just, I'd like to just add a little bit to that. Um, regarding dosages, uh, with smoking, people generally calibrate their own dosages because they stop when they're, they, they feel the effect, because it's generally fairly instantaneous. Uh, but with edibles, uh, there's generally a very delayed effect when the medicine is taken and when it actually starts to translate to the body. Uh, so observing that effect for a person is a little bit more difficult, but... With edibles, it is a lot easier to dose a particular, um, I guess, medicinal 
agent, whatever you'd like. And in so doing so, you can test the starting material in which you make, and then do some calculations to figure out how much you're actually giving somebody, whether or not it's 10 milligrams, 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams of a given cannabinoid. Uh, and you can also look at the actual chemical form of how the edible is being administered. So there are ways where we actually are now starting to be able to give caregivers at least an idea of what they're giving somebody, rather than them just saying, I use four grams of cannabis to make this butter, and then I give it to my patients and they seem to like it. What we're actually able to do now is give people numbers to start working with, so then as they you know, grow as caregivers or patients, they're actually able to administer things on more of a level basis. There's a lot of information that caregivers around the state are collecting, and, and they share information with people in other states. What's the best way for us to share the information on particular strains or the chemical makeup of individual strains? Because some people have their own brand names, and it's hard to tell if somebody says, I have this strain. You don't re nobody really knows where it came from, even if they got it someplace else. You know, they might know it. Oh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's something that, that is difficult in this industry right now because there's uh, about a million names and they don't really seem to mean a lot anymore, to me at least. Uh, I think if you trust your caregiver and you trust the source and they keep using a name, then I would trust that that name will imply that you're getting a cons consistent source of cannabis. But I would, I would not infer that an OG Kush here in Montana is going to be the same as an OG Kush in California or in New Mexico. It might be. But the real only way to truly prove that is through genetic sequencing, which does not exist for cannabis in this regard yet. It just simply does not exist. There's not a library of cannabinoid genetic profiles for us to really reference towards. And it's something that's going to happen, I believe, as time moves forward. But at this point, names are you know, a way to identify things for patients and caregivers to have a common language. But um, it, I fear to say that it doesn't necessarily mean a lot unless you trust your caregiver very explicitly that they're always giving you the same particular strain. Or I'd like to ask the question, first of all, has uh, there ever been an LD50 determined um, for THC or uh, for the synthetic Marinol? Is there an LD50 determined? Not that I, there might be, I, I'm not familiar. That's, that's you know, it, there almost has to be in, in the FDA archives an LD50 for Marinol because you're required to produce such a, such a number for anything that the FDA allows you to prescribe. I don't know what it is, personally, um, and, and frankly... Would it be two or three bales? <laughs> I, I, I do think, and if anybody in this room can contradict me, I'd love to have it happen right now, but... I'm, I'm not aware, and I say this to every patient that I certify, um, I'm not aware of any uh, marijuana-only or cannabis-only death, overdose deaths. Um, you know, and I think, I, I think it's a standing offer that lots of people have in the field that if you can produce evidence that somebody's managed to overdose, lethally overdose on cannabis-only, we'd like to know about it up till this point in time, I don't believe it's happening. Their website says that LD50 for THC is a value of 1,270 milligrams per kilogram, and that's in male rats. So In male rats, okay. Right. Yeah. We, we, we do, in fact, in 730 milligrams per kilogram for female rats, just... <laughs> that does prove that you can hold the herb. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you.
I do want to comment on that though, one real quick. I had to go to Canada for a stockholders meeting in 1991, and the Canadian government would not allow me in with my cannabis. They said that we don't let their patients in with theirs, so why should we let you in with yours? So I said, so we're between the two countries. They said, yeah, you're a pawn in the war. So then my doctor decided to give me Maradol, gave me 10 milligrams. He said, I'm going to try it the week before, because I don't want you to get on a plane and try it for the first time. So that Sunday morning I got up, and I popped one. And he'd give me a prescription for 30. I popped one and waited about a half an hour, nothing. I popped two more, <laughs> nothing. Waited about another 45 minutes, popped two more. Nothing, and I'm getting, and I'm not feeling anything from it. agitation, nothing at all. You know, my muscles tightening up, and here I've got all this cannabis just sitting there with the smoke, and I go, no, let me give it a real test. So I waited another half an hour, nothing, popped two more, and I just said, you know, that's it, I've had it. So I started smoking, you know, my, my medical cannabis. So then I went to uh, one of the research, uh, I think it was with the Institute of Medicine, and one of the doctors who was against us, I told him the story, he said, well, knowing your condition and knowing what you take, you should have taken 10 of them to begin with. And I said, wait a second, you're telling me that I should have taken one-third of the entire prescription at the first time. He said, well, that's what you would have needed. I said, no, thank you. I don't think I would take that chance. Since the federal government is giving Irvin and other people medical marijuana or medical cannabis and writing a prescription for it, how can they not admit that it has medical value, and how do they keep it on the Schedule One drug list? Well, I can easily answer that, okay. Uh, the DEA and FDA has a Schedule One, which means it has no medical value, period. Okay, the government gives it to us not as a medicine, they give us an experimental new drug, not a medicine. When I had to sue Delta Airlines for not allowing me on a plane in 2001 when I was at the Supreme Court, when I won the case, DEA explicitly said that I do not have a prescription for medicine. I have a prescription for an experimental new drug, and I have every right to bring my experimental new drug onto a plane. So that's how FDA justifies, and that's how DEA justifies, you know, what they believe to be. And of course, what I always argue is, well, you're giving it to me for medical reasons, and the fact that you've given me over 120,000 medical marijuana cigarettes so far, you would think that maybe they might want to research us at all, especially when they say there's no research. You know, and, you know, and, and the only time that any research was ever done on federal patients was done here in Montana. Okay, in 2001 by Dr. Ethan Russo in Missoula. And he did a complete evaluation on four of his patients. We did brainwave testing, IQ testing, respiration, memorization. We did everything. And all four of us were perfectly normal. So what's... <laughs> Ethan said that? Yes. Ethan said that. Ethan said that. So, you know, the point being is that the you know, government doesn't want to recognize that it's medical, okay, that's simple. It's all because of the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, the lobbyists and, and, and what it comes down to. And, of course, what's been done now and what people do not realize, and I want to emphasize this, I can't emphasize this enough, the VA, six weeks ago, government doctors stated for the first time that medical cannabis is a medicine, period. And done by Michael Kraus, okay, a, a veteran who had been using uh, opiates for his disorder, and then five years ago, all of a sudden, they wanted him to sign a release saying that he had nothing else in the system. If he did, they would stop treating him with opiates. He wouldn't sign that, and he took about educating the VA. This is what came out. This was done through Patients Out of Time. Now, Patients Out of Time is an organization that I'm a director, and all we do every two years is purely medical. We have the top scientists, we have the top doctors, we have the top clinicians, uh, nurses, patients, present what they've done for the last two years. 
The AMA, the American Medical Association, sanctions this conference to where doctors get CE credits. If this wasn't medical, they wouldn't give a doctor medical credits. The ANA, the American Nurses Association, sanctions our conferences to give nurses CE credits. If this wasn't medical, they would not sanction these CE credits. If a doctor is not, allowed, not able to attend our conference, they can go on the website at University of California, San Francisco, pay a fee, download our conference, get their CE credits. If this wasn't medical, this would not be accepted. So therefore, it's just a play on words. What's a website that a physician could go to and download that? And it's medicalcannabis.com is the website. Or University of California, San Francisco. You can go to their website also and go to download that. What will it take to get it removed from a Schedule One status, do you think? I think that we're very, very close to that. There's reclassification hearings going on that's been going on since the 70s. We're getting much closer to that now. I mean, that for almost 40 years. Okay. <laughs> so I, I do believe that, 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 that we're closer in that respect. And just the simple fact that the federal government agency, the VA, came out saying it's medicine. I mean, the government's just swept that under the table. We've got to emphasize that more, saying when the government says, well, the government's never come out and said it's medicine. Bullshit. Yes, you have. The VA's done that. Okay, and so I think that's what we need to emphasize. Based on that, do you think Montana is a little behind by not having PTSD as a recognized uh, application for medical cannabis? Well, I think all the states and everybody's behind in recognizing that aspects of, of medical cannabis for different disorders. PTSD now is being researched in Israel. Uh, well, two years ago, or three years ago, Israel had no patients. Today, thanks to Rick Doblin and some of his people, they've got almost 3,000 medical patients and they're researching the different cannabinoids. And, of course, the grandfather, Dr. Mishul, was from Israel, so he's been a big part of that. So, you know, none of the states, I, I, I applaud Montana because, my God, compared to my state of Florida, it's recognized way more illnesses in, in Florida, so I applaud what Montana's done. That's why I'm here, I just want to help them. Thank you. This is kind of along the same lines, but last year, the American Medical Association petitioned the U.S. government to reconsider its classification of uh, cannabis as a Schedule One narcotic. Does anyone have an update on where that petition stands? Well, actually, actually the AMA did it under duress. It was, it was actually the American College of Physicians, that group that represents the internal medicine specialists in this country, put out a position paper that forced the AMA's hand. And they, it, the Physician paper by the ACP, the American College of Physicians, which if you see an internist, almost all internists identify with that professional organization. And they requested a reclassification before the AMA. I can't tell you what the status is because basically I don't have the time to follow what games the DEA is playing. And that they're the ones that have to actually rule on it. But both ACP and now the AMA and a, and a large number of medical professional organizations have said, we want to study it. We want to at least resolve the rumor that there, you know, that there's no scientific evidence. There's plenty of evidence. I mean, one of the things, I brought this with me just, just is John Masterson here? No? He's out setting up his food. He's set up outside. Tell him to stick his head in here. So, now, this is the publication that Normal puts out that I tell all my patients about. And if you haven't seen it, you ought to see it. Because just looking at the cover of this, and I'll acknowledge that my copy came from Tom Dover, okay? The cover of this is enough to change minds. The cover of this little medical bibliography is enough to take a spouse 
who, who doesn't believe that their partner is really doing something legitimate and convince them just by looking at the range of pathologies. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Did you bring these with you? I may have one left. <laughs> Put it on the table, glue it down, and let people look at the cover. Because the beauty of this little booklet isn't that it's comprehensive, that it covers all the evidence that's out there about how marijuana can be useful as a medicine. It simply gives you such a phenomenal range that by the time you've acknowledged that it can be useful for everything from hepatitis C to diabetes to high blood pressure, you're beginning to think, wait. How many different conditions does cannabis influence? And the answer is, we don't know yet. We haven't spent enough time investigating it for all of its medical properties. But everybody in this room gets the opportunity, I believe, both as patients and caregivers, to help answer this question. And if you can get your personal physician to listen to you as a patient, when you talk about how it helps you, then the knowledge base is going to expand immediately. I'm not saying that they will listen to you, but I think each and every one of you ought to try. I have a question here for, for you, Dr. Christensen. Um, there, when, when you use specific drugs, okay, opioids, for example, or amphetamines, um, there are certain specific changes that happen within the brain. Um, I guess I have a two-part question here. First of all, and are there specific aberrations or, or changes that happen in the brain of chronic cannabis users? And also, too, uh, why is the toxicity of this herb so low? Um, why is that, that, that it's, the toxicity is so low in the human body? Okay, I'll do number two first, because it's the easy one. It is what it is. I mean, <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, you know, you've got a substance that has, the plant has, depending on who you read, Okay? I've, I've quoted 50 to 60, but in Canada they upped it to 60 to 70. We've got 60 to 70 separate biological compounds <coughs> in cannabis. Okay? Um, you know, Noel was, was giving you a little bit of terminology, which it's, it's helpful to back up very quickly because you all are going to hear these things. So there are two receptor types that have been identified by, by the initial CBD1 and CBD2. Okay. Um, there, CB, CB, CB. Yeah, the D isn't there. CB one and CB two. There is shorthand for a specific cannabinoid, which is CBD, and the terms anandamide and two AG reflect the two molecules that have been specifically identified in the human brain. We started out with lower animals, but you're all sitting here manufacturing. I hope some anandamide and some 2-AG because they're endogenous molecules in your body. And when you talk about any substance that's out there that we can utilize for medical purposes, there are darn few that represent exact duplicates of, of, of compounds that are being produced in the body. There are no prescription opioids that are identical to endorphins. That's why the term endorphin exists. It's a shorthand for endogenous morphine-like molecules. So all opioids are an attempt to mimic an endogenous molecule, but marijuana contains two molecules that are native to the human body. It makes it tremendously unique, and it gives 
tremendous weight to everything that, that Herb has said about forcing the recognition that this is, in fact, medication. I like to humorously posit the fact that if we find a few more identical molecules in cannabis, then we can stop calling it a medicine and call it a supplement. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question about a specific treatment um, of cannabis. Um, I became an advocate of it when my 15-year-old son, who had severe ADD, started smoking pot. And I was asking him, how come you're suddenly getting AIDS? And, and it was pretty amazing. It was pretty dramatic. And he told me it helped him focus. It helped him identify how he learned. Of course, he got arrested for that. He got into trouble. He got kicked out of school. And his psychiatrist, who I went to, put him on Marinol, which basically helped him pass the drug test and told me to cook for him. I cooked for him. He's now a senior at Arizona State studying wow. astrobiology. Wow. I've spoken with Dr. Russo in Missoula about ADD, and there's no literature out there about the treatment of ADD, and I wonder what does cannabis do to the brain that helps ADD? Because it's so much better than Ritalin. It just fixes it. Okay, well, I'll come back and finish answering Talon's question because I didn't do it. I'm not aware of, of any studies that show specific neuroanatomical or neurochemical abnormalities in the brain of people who use marijuana, other than some very early studies. And again, you know, for all of you who've listened to me talk, I'm repeating myself so you can all go to sleep right now. <laughs> The early studies done on marijuana tell us more about the contaminants that found their way into the into the, the sources of marijuana. I mean, low-quality cannabis came across the border from Mexico and Central America, and it was doctored with anything and everything that would make people feel stupid or euphoric or anything else, so they'd buy more of it. So there's a fair amount of literature talking about aberrations in, in behavior and in um, physiology that reflects what contaminants do. Marijuana itself, once you, you get down to the pure organically produced herb, doesn't have a lot of adverse effects, period. Now, you've got some very recently published literature that's, that's beyond question in terms of methodology that suggests that if you use it in an adolescent brain, and I'll go out on a limb and, and tell you two things real quick. One, I'm persuaded that in adolescents and, and young adults, probably up to about 25, that there's a different impact of the whole plant on the brain. It, it tends to bring about a different hierarchy of effects. And this is an observation based on the younger patients that I certify and the older patients that I certify. Okay? And, and their stories about what it did for them when they were younger and what it does for them now. But we certainly can look at data that tells us that the frontal lobe of the brain is still maturing through adolescence and into young adulthood. And that's real science, people. I mean, there is uh, enough information out there to tell you that you, you aren't the same in terms of how your brain works now as you were at 16. Thank God. <laughs> All right? Now... Given that fact, 
I think you need, do need to know that we are presented with literature that suggests that we may be unmasking as opposed to causing psychosis, particularly schizophrenia in adolescents in heavy users. So all that, all that I can tell you right now is that if someone wants to use very current scientific information to, um, you know, to uh, denigrate the idea of using marijuana as medication in adolescence, they're going to pull up those studies um, and they're going to talk about them. But that, there's no proof of causality, and all I want you to really realize is that you know, uh, in adolescence, marijuana may be giving us, cannabis may be giving us a different profile of behavior. Now, specifically for ADD, I've got about 300 plus patients who tell me that cannabis is superior to anything else they've ever been given for ADD. And I don't think those 300 people are lying to me. So I'm fascinated by the fact that you have one end of the spectrum in conventional pharmaceuticals stimulants being used to change behavior in ADD patients, and then you take cannabis, which I don't think most people in this room consider a stimulant, and yeah, it works for ADD. We need to know why. It's going to open some new doors, windows, into understanding brain chemistry and brain physiology, but right now, it's just anecdotal. That means it's observation. I don't know of any literature about it. This question is from Mr. Rosenfeld. Being a federal patient, uh, I don't know if they allow you cons to consume cannabis through other sources other than what they supply. Uh, I guess it's a two-part question. And if you can, I'd like to know if you sampled some Montana homegrown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the federal government would prefer that I only ingest medical cannabis from the federal government because they know exactly what's in it where when you ingest something that you don't know what's in it, they cannot supposedly uh, reaffirm the study, which there's no study to begin with. <laughs> uh, right now, my last shipment, my shipment should have been in October 8th, my next shipment. It's not in. Now, the government sometimes, most of the time, uh, does that, delaying tactics. And I will not be without my medicine, period. And so your question is, have I ever, have I tried any Montana's finest? Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I've tried some of Montana's finest, not only just in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's why I like to see individual growers, because individual growers are going to be more caring about their plants and about what they're trying to do. And it's almost like a connoisseur with wine. It's like, you know, look, what I, look at the wine I just made. You've got to try some of mine. Well, I'll try some of yours, but you've got to try some of mine, you know. And that's the way it is, and that's the way it should be. That's the way you're going to keep the plant, and it's going to be, hopefully be enhanced. And that's how you're going to discover in, in the plants, you know, what's, what's beneficial and what's not. And I think that's why I've tried other different types of cannabis, because the government gives me a Mexican-Jamaican blend that's a sativa. And it's, it's, it's cannabis sativa. It's not marijuana sativa. Or it's not marijuana indica. It's cannabis indica. That's why we want to use the name cannabis. But again, the government will not research to find out what different cannabinoids work best for different disorders. Of the four federal patients, one is glaucoma, and one is me, a, a, neuro, a neurological painful disorder. It's hard for me to believe that the same cannabinoids work best for her or work best for me. So therefore, for, and while the government's not going to research this, I applaud the individual states for trying to do the research that the government's not.
just have a general question. What is the difference between uh, the cannabis that people are ingesting and Marinol? Because the argument always is, well, you can just take Marinol. You know, there's no need for... Marinol is an isolated form of just straight THC. It's just it's, THC and none of the other constituents that you'll find evolving from the cannabis plants. You're going to be emitting all the other... 65 plus cannabinoids, you're also going to be emitting any terpenes or flavonoids, chlorophyll, any of the other potentially medicinal value uh, active agents in what would actually be the, the, the plant. And I believe there's even been um, a study since Marinol's evolution into the pharmaceutical world that has proven that Marinol is not close to as effective as uh, cannabinoids and the other medicine derived directly from the plant as a blend. And in fact, the blends that were I guess extracted from a direct cannabis plant put side by side with Marinol, which is just straight THC, showed that the Marinol was not even close to as effective as the uh, naturally derived blend of cannabinoids, flavonoids, terpenes, things like that. Is Marinol a synthetic? I believe I, I, I might be correct in this, but it is synthetic, I believe, but I also know that they have um, extracted it from... Uh, I guess the substance I'm thinking of now is Sativex. Sativex is kind of the next step of Marinol, where, and I believe it's in clinical trials. No, 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 well, not Stop. generations, probably Stop. the wrong word. Stop. But. Stop. No, it's totally wrong. No, it's no, a whole Sativex. Sativex, Sativex yeah, is the entire plant. They're not, they're not extracted. They're taking just a THC, it's a pure THC extract. It's not. Well, Sativex is supposed to be the one-to-one CBD THC blend. So that's going to be one of them. That's going to be, and that's the big... That's the big thing that, and I, I may be corrected, I thought that they actually isolated the THC and CBD from the cannabis plant and then gave that in, and what they're actually using it as sprays, sublingual sprays for patients. And so the thought is that Marinol being just THC would not be nearly as effective as a blend of THC and CBD, two specific cannabinoids that have received a lot of research and are shown to be very medicinally active. <laughs> Well, okay, Sativex, which interestingly enough is uh, produced by a company um, for which Ethan Russo is, is currently the medical director. Ethan, Ethan is, uh, is intimately involved in, in helping to bring a whole plant extract to the market. And, um, it's available in Canada. By this time, it should have been approved, I think, in Spain and England. So, so, so basically, it's it it contains, as far as I know, all the cannabinoids, and the extraction is done with supercritical CO2. Believe it or not, they take liquid carbon dioxide and they use that as the solvent to extract the molecules, and then the CO2 just evaporates off. It's a phenomenal process. Um, but simply put, it's an entourage drug, meaning it it is delivering a a large number of the, bio, of the biologically active con, uh, cannabinoids. I don't even believe that the company GW that does Sativex has yet completed a, a survey of all of the cannabinoids. Okay, I think they're still looking for something. What? A long way away. So you're you're dealing with a substance that, and and I I want to tell you very quickly because we're hitting lunchtime and people are getting antsy and. Need to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me make this one comment. Okay, that that 
in Canada, in Montreal, at uh, the Canadian Consortium for the Investigation of Can Cannabinoids about a month and a half ago, it was pointed out by two major pharmaceutical companies that their work uh, comprising more than 10 years and more than tens of millions of dollars have brought them nowhere in terms of bringing out therapeutic alternatives, single molecule alternatives based on active components of marijuana. So for all of the talk you hear about big pharma trying to replace marijuana, at the moment they don't have a tool, people. They may not be anxious to see what you're doing take over a, a lucrative niche in the pharmaceutical industry, but they haven't got an alternative. That being said, that leads up to my question. Um, first, though, before I ask, I just want to thank you, you three gentlemen, and the Montana Medical Growers Association for being here today and giving your time today and um, the support that we're all looking for. I really appreciate it. My question is this. Three years ago when I started, um, when I decided to go get my name on the list and get my card, um, I was in such a devastating pain I could barely speak to my doctor about it. And I was seeing a, a really great physician at the clinic here in Helena. He could not recommend marijuana for me because they're a federally funded clinic, was my understanding. So he recommended me to a pain specialist here in Helena, who I'm going to name because I don't want anybody else to, to, be, to have this aspersion cast on me because Dr. Mulgrew humiliated me out of his office when I sought um, pain management. Now, I had medical records for my entire life demonstrating not only my pain, but my intolerance for pharmaceuticals. Okay? He demanded that I go through the pharmaceutical treatment before I, he would even consider prescribing for me. My question for you, Dr. Christensen, is this. What can we do? I mean, I, was, I, I stood there crying in his office while he walked out the door on me. Okay, telling me he was not going to prescribe pot for me so I could sit at home and get stoned and collect my disability. When I was in the process of building a cabin by hand from scratch when I got there, okay? So, my question is, for all of the patients out there who are, who are just devastated and hopeless and don't know that there's someplace else to turn, if it hadn't been for the Hemp and Cannabis Foundation, I probably would have put a bullet in my head. I was in so much pain. What do we do, guys? How do we convince our doctors that not only do we need help, but this is the help? I can't take the drugs. I have liver disease, and I have medical records showing that these things make me very, very sick. What do I do? How do we help the these people? Now, this is the beginning of what you do. Well, again, what's your doctor? I'll answer that. What your doctor was, he was scared shitless, okay, is what his problem was. It wasn't that he didn't want to help you. It's this that he's got to touch certain bases or else his license could be on the line. So it's a shame that that's the way it, it, it's, it comes down to it. And what can you do is all you can do is try to educate that doctor. Again, when the doctor says, you know, thinks of a stereotype that you're sitting home, you know, getting high, well then send them to our website, medicalcannabis.com. Have them see that the AMA, the ANA, you know, all sanction these conferences for doctors to edu be educated. Because see, that's the problem. Doctors are not educated about medical cannabis in medical school. It's that simple. They do not, there's not probably one medical school, and I'm not certain of this, but I'm sure there's probably not one medical school that really teaches about medical cannabis in this country. It's doctors on their own later on when they have, when they have caring physicians and they have their patients come to them and they want to help the patient. The patient says, well, you know what really works for me is medical cannabis. Well, this doctor's never heard of that. He doesn't know that. 
Okay, so you've got to take the time to educate them. My book that I've got, again, that, that shows, I mean, this is a good lobbying uh, you know, material that you can take to a doctor, you can take to your politicians and teach them to try to let them know that the stereotype isn't someone sitting home getting high and collecting welfare. All they want to do is they didn't ask for this any you know, bad disorder. All they want to do is live as best life possible, and if this substance, this natural herb called cannabis is what works best, then this is what I need, and this is what I need to do is educate the doctors. That's the best you can do. comment that doesn't actually answer your question in detail. We don't really have time, but, uh, but I, it speaks to your question, and I just wanted everyone to know that one of the ways Patients and Families United has sought to influence the attitudes of physicians and other healthcare professionals in the state is, uh, is through working with the Montana Pain Initiative, which is kind of a, a coalition of hospitals, physicians, nurses, uh, groups of various kinds that are focused on pain for one or another reason. Uh, we focused on that group partly because they were just forming when I launched PFU, but also because they were mandated by the 2005 legislature to recommend policy changes that would improve pain treatment in Montana. It's been a slow process for us four years of working with that group, uh, but their first conference, they wouldn't let us be a sponsor. Uh, they did let us have an informational table. Last year at their third annual convention, uh, we provided the keynote speaker, Ethan Nadelman, uh, director of the Drug Policy Alliance. And later this month, for those of you who live in Billings, particularly if you're a pain patient, October 30th, which is a Saturday, uh, that afternoon, Dr. Donald Abrams, who's one of the few uh, American-based on cannabis, will be the keynote speaker and then they'll have a panel on medical marijuana that will include a caregiver and me and uh, Mark Long, who's the state's top narcotics officer. So that's, that's a forum at which and through which we've been trying to slowly educate uh, pain treatment physicians to be less uh, dogmatic and uh, skeptical about cannabis. Thank you. I'd very much like to thank our three panelists, and uh, you'll be hearing from Irvin again later this afternoon at 5. You'll be seeing hearing Noel at, uh, I believe you're the first breakout. Yeah, testing of medicine, and, and that particular one is going to be find out how and why medical cannabis is tested. It's a more in-depth scientific view, gain insight into the different testing methods, best cannab basic cannabis chemistry, and the current medical knowledge, including symptoms and solutions. Uh, that's going to be in this room after lunch. Uh, and then at 3 o'clock in this room is delivery methods, where they'll talk about different types of delivery. Um, in the room right next door after lunch will be Customer Service 101 um, with Taylor Lang as the uh, moderator. And that's really focused for caregivers. All right, So if you're a caregiver, that's something very good for you to attend as well. And then at 3 o'clock in that room are the legal considerations. Um, and, and Chris Lindsay will be running that. So it's a power-packed afternoon, uh, meeting back in here at 5 o'clock then for a general session for her. Uh, 